Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 58 and the silent ones rebuked. Will you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. And Lord, as we look at this very challenging and yet very applicable psalm, Lord, we're going to be reminded that we must speak up. We must speak up because of the grace of God. We must speak up against the the evils and the injustice of our age because we are called to carry forth glad tidings and good news. Yes, that confronts the wickedness in men's hearts, but it also confronts the wickedness in our society. And so, Lord, help us today as we consider this psalm to consider it, yes, as even perhaps a rebuke to us, to our failure to speak up against the evils in our society, but also, Lord, as a reminder, as instruction, that, Lord, what we believe, it leads to something. It should lead to loving our neighbor with the love of God and Christ alone, and to ultimately telling them the truth about their sin and their need of rescue in Christ alone. So, Lord, help us now illuminate this passage, this Psalm 58 to us, Lord, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, as Second uh, Peter 3.18 says. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true and that it has so much to teach us, including on this topic today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 58. And hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Do, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. You, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like the water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child that who never sees the sun. Sooner your pots can fill the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may you sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is the reading of God's precious word. Two of the most unpopular addresses ever given at Harvard University were delivered by famous Christians. In 1991, Charles Colson, former White House assistant and then head of the Prison Fellowship Ministry, spoke at the prestigious Harvard Business School. Colson pointed to the increasing number of public scandals involving high government officials, including a record 1,150 prosecutions of office holders the previous year. The situation was no better when it came to business leaders. 
Colson quoted Time Magazine, which he said, hypocrisy, betrayal, and greed unsettle a nation's soul. And the New Republic, which reported a destructive sense, noting that it is true and everything is permitted. Colson's aim was to challenge the privileged elite of the Harvard Business School to respond to what he said, a crisis of character. In 1978, the Russian dissident Alexander Sol spoke at the Harvard graduation, delivering a stunning critique of Western secular humanism. Having fled the communist repression, he was dismayed to discover a spiritual vacuum in America. Having once rooted its idea of freedom and man's relationship to God, the West had since granted boundless freedom simply for the sake of the satisfaction of man's basic instincts and whims, he said. Now, in the place of the moral heritage of Christian uh, centuries with the great reserves of mercy and sacrifice, he said, Western governments have become increasingly and totally materialistic, he said, so that man's sense of responsibility to God and society grew dimmer and dimmer. And he concluded that all the glorified technological achievements of progress, including the conquest of outer space, do not redeem the 20th century's moral poverty. And neither of these two uh, addresses were, were uh, given to a receptive audience, to say the least. Colson's call to character at the business school was ignored as a quaint irrelevance, and Solmhauser's rebuke to the Western pride was met with indignant anger. As harsh as Colson's challenge and Sobolski's rebuke to the Harvard at Harvard sounded, they were quite mild to David's uh, prayer in this psalm. This is one of David's five imprecatory psalms, that is, prayers for God's violence to overthrow and judgment of the wicked, in this case, the corrupt rulers of Israel. So violent is David's language that Psalm 58 uh, receives even more intense opposition today than Colson and Solzheimer earned at Harvard. As an example, in 1980, the Church of England exempted its members for having to read Psalm 58 in worship. Such a condemning attitude for this and even other biblical rebukes is misguided since David's anger is a reflection of God's own wrath and as such presents a vital warning to the wicked. Psalm 58, therefore, ought to be required reading, not an optional extra. Michael Wilcock calls Psalm 58 a psalm with a social conscience reflecting the moral indignation of God himself. Marvin Tate describes Psalm 58 as a vehement denunciation of the corruption of leaders and judges and an equally vehement call for their judgment. And it cannot be denied that Psalm 58 employs language that is uncomfortable for many modern hearers especially when it goes so far to say that the righteous man will rejoice to bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked in Psalm 58, verse 10. The curses expressed in David's prayer are deemed unchristian, causing some commentators to allege a fundamental difference between the Old and the New Testament. After all, Jesus prayed in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them from the cross. And he urged his followers to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in Matthew 5, 44. And so shouldn't the imprecatory prayers and even bloody portions of the Old Testament be rejected as false and primitive views that were replaced by so-called Christian spirituality? And yet a balanced approach to the imprecatory Psalms will realize that David's prayers against the wicked are not, in fact, opposed to the ethics of Jesus Christ. 
One way to see this is to note how vehemently Jesus spoke against the corrupt rulers of his day, using language every bit as violent as David's. In Matthew 23, 15, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, referring to them as children of hell, blind guides, whitewashed tombs. Jesus concluded his diatribe with language right out of this psalm, Psalm 58, in Matthew 23, 15 through 33, saying, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Another way to make sense of Psalm 58 is to note that David was not acting in personal retaliation against the wicked, but instead praying for God's just retribution. The New Testament urges believers to refrain from retaliation. It also encourages them to desire God's uh, desire God's retribution on evil. In Romans 12, 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. David followed this principle. His life shows him to be a forgiving man who treated his enemies with kindness. Perhaps the clearest example of David's forbearance was his graciousness towards King Saul, who may well be the special target of Psalm 58. In response to evil attacks, David did not seek vengeance, but he did cry out in outraged anguish to God. In this way, the, the imprecatory Psalms, they provide a positive example to Christians. In fact, Michael Wilcox says that the singers of these songs are not merely onlookers. This is not an arena, but a battlefield. And the righteous are not specters, but participants in the struggle against the powers of the evil world, as we see in Ephesians 6.12. Psalm 58 is a prayer for spiritual warriors. It is directed against the corrupt and the wicked rulers of Israel. Psalm 58 verse 1 presents a translation difficulty, and that is reflected in the variety of English translations. This difficulty arises from David's use of the word alim, which normally means silence. Because this word seems to fit oddly, many translators assume that David meant this as an abbreviated form of the Hebrew word Elohim, which means God. And yet the Old Testament occasionally uses Elohim to speak of human rulers who consider themselves to be godlike in their power. This is why the English Standard Version says, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? The NIV offers a slightly different translation. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? And it's clear that David indeed is castigating unjust rulers, and yet the literal rendering of Elam is silence. Given this fact, it seems best to translate Psalm 58 verse 1 as accusing the judges of Israel of being silent when they should have been speaking against evil. And along these lines, the New King James Version reads in verse 1, Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? According to James' voice, the opening stanza accuses them of silence and reminds us that to remain silent when evil is planned is also an evil and deserves God's condemnation, Boyce says. Are you careful to stand up against evil and to do what is right? The protest of a single godly man, Abeb Malik, the Cushite, was used by God to save Jeremiah from death in the cistern in Jeremiah 38, 1-13. God often uses a single righteous person to throw out the plans of evil. And it turns out that corrupt rulers of Israel not only stood by silently, but were also involved in wicked conspiracies. And David complains in verse 2 that in your hearts you devise wrongs. You, your hands deal out violence on earth. And here we see how the wicked heart is joined to the works of evil hands. 
occupying positions that should have inspired their duty to display righteousness, the Jewish leaders instead callously use their offices to do the work of evil. A literal rendering of Psalm 58.2 is saying that their hands wave violence on the earth. And this might seem to be a sarcastic reference to the scales of justice that have been placed on corrupt rulers' hands, which instead weighed out the most violent injustice. No wonder David is justly outraged before the Lord. Now, in verses uh, 3 through 5 of this psalm, David describes the kind of people to whom he is protesting against saying this in verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth. You see, the reason that these corrupt rulers sin is that they're sinners, which they have been from the time they occupy their mother's womb. And David states the truth known to theologians as a doctrine of original sin, stating that since Adam's fall, every human being possesses a nature thoroughly corrupted by sin. But it is not just theologians who know this. According to G.K. Chesterton, original sin is the only philosophy that has been empirically validated by 3,500 years of human history. In fact, in Psalm 51, David admitted that he was part of the problem in Psalm 51.5 when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David does not mention original sin to excuse the corrupt rulers. Rather, he means that these men are sinners who have never been reformed at any time in their lives. J.J. Stewart Perrone uh, states that David's point is to mark the special character of these wicked men as men whose whole life has been one continuous, unchecked career of wickedness, bold, habitual, hardened transgressors. David illustrates his point by noting that they speak lies in verse 3. A heart that is corrupted by sin is bound to be deceitful which is why lying is one of the very first sins that arises in children. David speaks of the fearful danger poised by these sinful rulers by comparing them to Asp, a snake whose venom brought nearly instant death in verse 4. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the death adder. So the feigned uh, snake is a favorite image of David's for those who speak out against violence, speak out viol violently. Even worse, these men are like a deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter in verses 4 through 5. David alludes to the musical snake enchanters of the East. And there is, however, a kind of snake that does not hear the music and cannot be tamed. H.C. Leipold comments that David's enemies have developed by their very refusal to listen to the truth, a certain imperviousness to all the good effects that any honest approach may have on them. They have degenerated so far as they produce evil as naturally and as regularly as does a serpent that has poison beneath its tongue. And when studying passages such as those that forcefully denounce sin, it's important to realize that we are looking not merely at, at a portrait of others, but also into the mirror where we can see ourselves. David may be grieving particularly terrible examples of human sinfulness, but the sins he laments remain examples typical of all humanity. We praise God that men and women born into a sinful condition may be changed and saved by the grace of God alone. And yet we also recognize the human condition from which we need to be saved is always totally depraved. David's description of the wicked here in Psalm 58, it reminds believers to submit our hearts to Christ for the removal of the deadly poison towards others so that our speech brings life instead of death. 
And most importantly, we should ensure that the heart, that our hearts are open to God, no longer deftly resolute in rebellion, but humbly attentive to Christ's saving word. See, the heart of Psalm 58 is David's cry for God to act against his wicked enemies. It is undeniable that David uses violent terms in this imprecatory prayer. It's helpful, though, to notice two categories in which he is asking God to act. The first category of David's plea consists of requests to God to destroy the ability of the wicked to harm their victims. He says this in verse 6, O God, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. And so David represents his foes as ravenous beasts, asking for God to shatter or even to remove their deadly fangs. His point is not to wish them physical harm, but to put an end to their ability to harm others. And so he prays in verse 7 for the enemy's arrows to be shot without penetrating force. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. And in this figure, David asked God to cause the designs of the wicked to fail in weakness. David's second category requests that God will remove the evil effects of the wicked and eradicate their corrupt legacy. And he prays this in verse 7 when he says, Let them vanish like water that runs away. And in the same way that water seeps into the earth, he asks for the influence of the wicked to disappear. In verse 8, it expresses this desire in harsh language when he says, Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. David would like to see the wicked melt away like a snail under the heat of God's wrath, leaving only a slimy slimy residue behind. Or to use a different metaphor, like a child who never enters into life, David seeks for God to abort the designs of the wicked. And so David then asks God to thwart evil foes in such a way that their best efforts are completely frustrated. He pictures a man trying to heat a pot with a fire of thorns, except that the wind blows out the flames. In verse 9, he says, Sooner than your pots can fill the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. There is no point in denying that David's prayer involves crude and even violent imagery. We should remember, though, that David is not acting in violence against the wicked, but praying for God to oppose them. David is appealing to God's retributive justice, not committing sins against his foes. He asked God to do what it what a faithful soldier must do in war. Those who recoil at David's language will have to level equal criticism against the Allied forces in their defeat of Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany, a war that required intense violence against the wicked in order to restore peace. We have been talking about the fact that David's imprecatory prayer is consistent with Jesus' angry denunciation of wicked leaders. And we also need to talk about how his appeal is ultimately fulfilled in the triumph of Christ over evil. David's prayer to break the teeth of the wicked was answered when Jesus confounded the Pharisees' attempt to trap him with their words in Matthew 21, 27 and Matthew 22, uh, 21 and refuted their false accusations in his sham trial. Jesus' death and resurrection caused the curse of sin to vanish like the water into the dry ground and snuffed out the kingdom of Satan like a strong breeze blowing against the fire of thorns. We can be sure that Christ's continuous intercessory prayers in heaven for his people include appeals to the Father to throw out the designs of those who oppose the gospel and seek to advance the cause of evil. Sober reflection shows that we have no grounds for standing in judgment 
on David's imprecatory prayers. David's prayers against the wicked may effectively accuse Christians today. His example challenges us to explain why we're not similarly outraged against the corrupt and even the deadly actions of ungodly powers. Christians living in America and the West are surrounded by a society that is collapsing under the concentrated effort of men and women who are bent on removing godly influence from civic life. These wicked rulers, these cultural elites, are proposing, performing their protecting activities that descend to the level of the worst evils in the Old Testament. Christians today should ask themselves the question that Derek Kidner does, whether an impassioned curse of tyrants is better or worse than a shrug of the soldiers of a diplomatic silence. And instead of removing Psalm 58 from the reading in our local churches, we should make it a regular part of our prayer life. And in fact, an example of the evils that call for our imprecatory prayers. Consider that despite his proud concern for individual rights, America legally protects the savage slaughter of thousands of unborn children every year. Women and men involved in abortions should be encouraged by the power of Christ's atoning blood in his resurrection to grant them forgiveness for their sins as he does for all those who repent and believe in Christ alone. Christians should reach out with mercy to women with crisis pregnancies, but we, we should also pray to God in tearful outrage over the shocking murder of so many precious children right around the corner where we live and where we work. In David's terms, Christians should pray for God to remove the fangs of the ravenous beasts who profit from this terror. Consider as well the increasing pressure to accept homosexual, homosexual relationships and transgender relationships and more. Here again, Christians should extend mercy to those caught up in this soul-destroying sin, many of whom are a victim of sexual abuse. We should be willing to befriend homosexual men and women, invite them to church, tell them the good news of deliverance through Jesus Christ. And yet, Christians should also be furious about the wicked cultural leaders who depict as wholesome a pattern of behavior that is denounced in God's word as an abomination in Genesis 19.7, Leviticus 18.22, and Leviticus 20.13. And that wrecks deadly ruin on so many lives. Believers should speak out publicly against homosexuality and transgenderism while praying for God to overthrow the designs of those who deceitfully promote this devious sin. Christians should be outraged over the corporate scandals in which greedy executives enrich themselves while defrauding their, co their workers. We should pray for God to overthrow the pornography industry and to condemn those who protect its legal status. We should burn with indignation over fathers who abandon their families and false preachers who lead multitudes astray with heretical and gospel-denying doctrine. In other words, the problem today is not that Christians continue to tolerate uh, imprecatory prayers such as Psalm 58, but that we do not pray similarly against the same kind of evils that surround us. If Nero fiddled while Rome was burned, Christians today are taking violin lessons while a once Christian civilization goes up in flames. This is not to say that Christians should cease raising their children in order to fight today's cultural wars, nor should Christians so identify themselves in opposition to sins if their witness to the gospel of forgiveness is overshadowed. Some Christians will be called to enter politics in the cause of righteousness or to engage in ministries dealing with societal evils. But all Christians should be praying with broken, burning hearts for God to intervene against corrupt leaders who, in the words of David, devise wrongs in their hearts and use their hands to deal out violence on the earth, as Psalm 58 too says. Whereas Psalm 58 rebukes the silent ones of Israel, 
corrupt rulers who refuse to speak out against injustice. The reading of the psalm today rebukes the self-absorbed and even the indifferent Christians whose voices are silent in prayer while the injustice and the evil reign around them. Alongside the moral outrage of our time is a spiritual scandal of Christians who are too busy to labor in prayer for God to cast down the wicked and to give strength to his gospel. This is why we must speak up. There is so much evil in our day. And we as Christians must speak up. We must use the voice that God has given us. We see this. You know what what I'm saying here? Is we need to be clear. If we're going to preach the gospel, we must call sin what it is. We must be unafraid to do so. We must be unafraid to to agree with Paul about what sin is in Romans 1 through 3. We must agree and have a sound understanding of the bad news of the gospel that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And we must also have a good understanding of, of the good news of the gospel, that Christ alone is sufficient and that he always will be. It's not enough just to say, you know what, you're a sinner. You have, you have crossed the boundary. You have sinned with intention. You have transgressed the law of God without telling them as well as Paul did after all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, he tells them about the death and resurrection of, of Christ in Romans uh, 3.24 and Romans 6.24. And so this is so important because we're living in a time where there is great outrage. There is a great amount of evil from supposed racial inharmony and injustice and supposed racial equality and the pursuit of it. And and that we need to be speaking out against the evils of sex trafficking just as much as we speak out against the evils of abortion. And we need to put, what I'm saying is, we don't need to just proclaim this. We need to put our feet to action. It's not enough just to pray about these things. It's not enough just to say the right words. Faith without works, James says in James 2, is dead. It is worthless. Where is our pursuit of the orphan and the widow and the fatherless? We want to see we want to see strong men in our churches. We want to see healthy marriages in our churches and in society. It starts with us. We must use our voice. We must speak the truth in love as we're commanded in Ephesians 4:15. We have a message that is the gospel, that is good news to the per- a perishing world that desperately needs to hear of, of the Savior who has come under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that we justly deserve in our place and for our sin, and that he was buried and he rose again, and that even now he is our high priest, he is our intercessor, he is our mediator, and he is our soon-returning king. And so we must be clear about these things today. We must be clear and use our voice to speak out against uh, the evil of of government overreach and more, and against the assault even by our own government against religious liberty and against the the evil of, of other countries and nations persecuting Christians all over the world. We must be clear about these things, and we must pray about them, and we must put our feet to action. The final verses of Psalm 58, it expresses the joy of the righteous in God's judgment of evil. 
Not only does David pray for God to cast down the wicked, but he predicts the certainty of the corrupt ruler's overthrow and the blessing of those who have trusted in God. The imagery of verse 10 is drawn from the battlefield as the victors stride over the rune and the slain enemy, saying the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. In the end, when God has judged the world, Christ's defeated enemies will all be people whose salvation we desired and sought in this world, but whose ultimate judgment serves to display the glory of God's holiness, justice, and might. The, the rejoicing of the godly is not a gloating that arises from personal vindictiveness. Instead, believers will rejoice. Uh, instead, the rejoicing of the godly is not a gloating that arises from personal vindictiveness, I mean. Instead, believers will rejoice to see the proof of God's love and their final salvation from evil and to witness the exaltation of God's kingdom against every rebel banner. Christopher Wright states that the rejoicing in passages such as Psalm 58 is a celebration of the hope of God's coming. The God who reigns now in the affirmations of faith and worship, he says, will one day come to put things right for his whole creation. So far from opposing the gracious ethic of Jesus, David's imagery will be fulfilled in the return of Christ. According to Roman, or excuse me, according to Revelation 19, 11 through 16, Christ will return mounted on a white horse to judge and make war, saying this, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Exultant in his victory, angels and redeemed souls alike will praise him with great rejoicing. Revelation 19, 1 through 2 says, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and who has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Psalm 58, 11 concludes with an assurance that those who trusted and served the Lord did not do so in vain. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous, surely there is a God who judges the earth. It was precisely the wisdom of serving God that the ungodly doubted and even mocked in the world, just as they wagered that God's judgment would never actually come. And yet David assures us that when Christ returns, all mankind will affirm that those who committed themselves to him in this life will be blessed in the end, even as they were helped by God's grace along their earthly pilgrimage. And perhaps the best way for us to apply David's assurance of final salvation may be to return to the superscription that precedes Psalm 58. There we find that this is one of six psalms identified as a mictum. Scholars are uncertain of the meaning of this word, except that it seems to derive from a verb that means to engrave. And remembering that many of David's psalms were composed while he hid in a cave, it's possible that these words were originally scribed by David on a rock walls and only later committed to paper. From this suggestion, James Boyce suggests a fitting resolution when he says this. Whether or not these words were actually inscribed on the rock walls of the cave of Adlam, let them be inscribed on your heart. Let this climatic saying be a mictum to you. Assure yourself that on the basis of God's revelation in Scripture, that the righteous still are rewarded, and that there is a God who judges the earth. And so Charles Colson concluded his address, which we began by talking with at the opening of our time together at Harvard Business School with one final appeal. Having rejected his own self-righteousness and admitting the problem of sin in his own life, Colson urged the students to realize that only by trusting in Jesus could they escape the condemning bondage of sin. And so Colson writes, it's only when I can turn to the one whom we celebrate at Easter, the one who was raised from the dead, that I can 
find the will to do what is right. And realizing this gospel truth and fearing the condemnation of sin that David predicts, we are to seek the only true refuge that God has provided, the saving ministry of his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God and the son of man, who paid on the cross the penalty of our sins and rose on the third day. You see, only Jesus offers forgiveness and power for godly living to all who repent of their evil deeds, cast themselves on his mercy, and believe on the name of Christ alone. Would you please pray with me now? Father, we thank you that, first, that your word is true, and that even as we've considered this, this imprecatory psalm, we're reminded that in John 19.30 you said, It is finished. And there it was signed, it was sealed and delivered. There the the wrath of God was fully satisfied. And only there can can you wipe away, not not only satisfied, but wipe away the record of our sin against you. And only there can you then impute to us the righteousness of God to our accounts whereby we can be declared not guilty. Only only there can we be declared friends of God, children of God, and dwelt by the Spirit of God, given the promise of eternal life. All not because we deserve it, all not because we merit it, because of our achievements or our accomplishments or our greatness, our thoughts, our opinions, our education, but solely because of the righteousness of Christ alone. So Lord, we we are reminded that at the cross, the love and the holiness of God met. And there and only there can we be forgiven. Only there can we have the forgiveness of sin. And only there and only because of that message in Christ alone, Can we proclaim Christ and Him crucified to a watching world? So, Lord, help us today. Help us today, Lord, to proclaim that message in word and deed to the glory of our Savior and King. And, Lord, may you raise the dead to new life, not to raise them literally from the dead, but to raise them from their sins to new life in you. Lord, Lord, we pray for those who have not yet repented and put their trust in you, Lord. We pray that you would open eyes and give ears to hear that, Lord, that that you may sovereignly draw them by your grace to yourself. And Lord, we pray, I pray, Lord, for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would boldly proclaim the gospel, whether that's at the abortion mill, Lord, or whether we're out at our job or Wherever we, wherever you have placed us, Lord, may we be faithful. May we be faithful to proclaim the gospel in all of its fullness as we even go from our jaws. May we use whatever platform, whatever, whether that's small or large on the internet to proclaim your glory and Christ over all and in all. So Lord, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for the many ways in which we failed to have failed to speak up to help pray and to pray even biblically like David does in Psalm 58. Lord, we confess our need of your grace. And we know that your grace is all sufficient. So Lord, we, we love you and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.